And for me, a, a satchel is the most British thing. And if I can see them be made, and if I can talk to the people making them, I'm not going to be able to do that over a really big distance and in a different language. You're listening to the Make It British podcast. I'm Kate Hills, and I'm on a one-woman mission to save UK manufacturing. I invite you to join me each week when I'll be sharing the stories behind some of the best British-made brands and UK manufacturers and offering you advice and tips on making in the UK. So let's get on with today's show. Hello and welcome to episode number 142 of the Make It British podcast. On today's episode, I'm chatting with Julie Dean, OBE, founder of the Cambridge Satchel Company, and she is one of my favourite people in UK manufacturing, so I am so chuffed that she agreed to come on the show. In this interview, we recorded it remotely, Julie was at her home in Cambridgeshire with her boxer dog in the background, and she gives some really valuable advice to anyone who is setting up a brand that is made in the UK. She talks all about how she ended up setting up her own factory that she needed really quickly because she had a back order of 20,000 satchels that she needed to get made. And her business had grown so fast and there was an issue with her manufacturer. And so she thought, right, that's it. I'm going to set up the factory. And she tells you all about how she did that and how she'd actually recommend that anyone else in a similar position would do the same, despite the fact that it was clearly pretty hard work at the time. Now, if you haven't taken a look at the Cambridge Satchel collection and their range recently, I'd highly recommend you have a look at their website because their new collection is looking really great. And it's all part of a strategy that Julie devised during lockdown that she talks about in this interview about how the business has gone back to its roots and looked at who their customers truly are. Now, Julie is such an inspiration to many people that are looking to build a brand that is made in the UK. So it's no wonder that she is now entrepreneur in residence at the British Library. And also during this interview, I found out that she is the holder of a world record for the most amount of business pitches listened to in one session. Now, if you want to find out how long that session was, you're going to have to listen to this interview because I couldn't quite believe how many pitches and how long she had spent listening to them in one sitting. So that was that's really worth listening to that bit. So before we get on to the interview, I just want to thank everyone that came along to our virtual pop-up, which happened on Instagram at the end of October. Now, don't worry if you missed it, because there's still lots of opportunity to find gifts that are made in the UK. Firstly, we're going to keep that Instagram open for people to, to still browse all the gifts, and that's at Make It British pop-up. Um, so you'll be able to find it there. And we've also got the gift guide on our website. So if you go to makeitbritish.co.uk forward slash gift guide, you'll see tons of amazing UK-made gifts recommended to you by our members that you can order from them in time for Christmas. And many of them are small businesses. They all make in the UK and we need to support them now more than ever. So please take a look. We've made your gift buying really easy this year. Just flick through the Make It British gift guide. 
Okay, right, let's get on to this interview with Julie. Enjoy. Julie, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today because I know what a busy woman you are. I am. I am at the moment. I'm spinning plates like a mad thing. <laughs> well, I remember we I looked it up actually. We first spoke in August 2012. So it was just over a year after I set up Make It British. And I don't know whether you remember, but you called me and said, Kate, I've had this awful incident. My manufacturer has taken all my knives and my leather and is ripping me off and making copycat bags. And I think I'm going to have to set up a factory. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's it. That was, that sounds really sort of spot on because it's like when you need to set up a factory and you didn't know you were going to have to set up a factory. <laughs> That's not ideal, is it? When when you don't have a head of manufacturing and because uh, you didn't really think you were going to be doing manufacturing, <laughs> then that is definitely less than ideal. And And when I was reading slightly later about Mulberry and their, you know, they were going to set up a new factory and it was a business growth, uh, the British Growth Fund, and they were going to take two years over it and there was the footprint of the factory and all this. And, and I had sort of like 20,000 bags in the hole, fired my manufacturer, didn't think I was going to set up a factory, no experience of setting up a factory. <laughs> yeah, that, that, was, uh, that was definitely one of those times that, I, I was not, um, that, that wasn't what I was expecting when I, when I woke up in the morning. And it was never, it was never part of the plan. I, I think that's one of the key things, isn't it? You can't, they say plan for everything. Well, you can't plan for everything because you don't even know what's around the corner, just like the pandemic, I suppose. Mm. But you you've know, still you got that factory or you still got a factory. Or it's I've a, got a it's better a different factory. One now. I've got a better yeah. factory because the, the front fell off my first factory. <laughs> oh, did it? <laughs> yeah, it was fun because I literally, literally, that's exactly what happened. I found out my manufacturer was was taking leather and using my knives and, and making copycats. And, and I just thought I cannot go through this again. So obviously... I'm going to have to set up a factory. I, I love the way that when you're, well, at least when I'm super stressed, it's like, that's just the way it is. You know, it's nothing to get too wound up about. I've obviously now got to set up a factory. Okay. <laughs> now, logically, this factory is going to have to be really close to the other factory because a lot of the people who worked at the first factory are going to work at the second factory. And so it's got to be in, in this. So I go into right move and look on commercial and, and put in a postcode in a three mile radius and think, well, you know, this wasn't really one of those foreseen circumstances. So it's not like I've got financing for it. It's not like I've saved up for it. So it's got to be cheap as chips factory. And I've, I really, really need it quite quickly because I've I've now got about twenty thousand <laughs> bags on back order and I haven't got anywhere to make them or any sewing machines. In fact, so um, it, yeah, it was it was a really really stressful time. So, would you do it all again though? If you if you were starting up the business from scratch again, would you think? Okay, yes, I would advise a, a some a brand in a similar position to take control of their own manufacturing like that. Yes. <laughs> yes. Because I 
would have a very hard time having been burned. I would have mm. a very hard time trusting a manufacturer with um, the thing that my business depends on. Mm. You know, and and also, you know, at that stage, I was not going to be anybody's first priority. You know, so so we have the factory, we own our manufacturing now. I'm never going to be told, oh, yes, you'll get your, your stuff on Thursday. And then on Wednesday, oh, sorry, you know, somebody bigger, more important to me has put pressure on. So now you're, you're going to be in two weeks time, you'll have your stuff. And then you think, well, how do I manage this? You know, I don't have that anymore. Mm. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I definitely would, but I would, I would um, like a little bit of notice that it was going to be a little bit more <laughs> on but the I, <laughs> yeah. I do say that to people, you know, have you, you've got, if you have some skills, even in design and making things, then actually it is a thing to consider. And I mean, I would imagine when you start that, that first factory, you didn't need to invest in that many machines, did you? To start no, with? it was sort of like um, kids with their musical instruments. You know, you, you sort of, you, you think, oh, God, she's got to do violin lessons. Let's hope that doesn't last too long because it's a pretty <laughs> sort of excruciating thing to listen to when they're not very good um, until they get good. Uh, and And so you do that kind of like, I'm going to hire it and then, I could buy it at the end if I'd hired it long enough. And and it was exactly that with the sewing machines. I remember um, the sewing machines, the post machines were like 23 pounds a week to hire. Yeah. And then you, you hire them for long enough and then you get an option to buy them. And so I had to do it that way and, and have complete sort of like trust that it was all going to pan out because I was having to use the money that people were paying for their bags to buy the machines to make their bags. So it was a very scary time. But it's still going now. I mean, so you were suddenly running a factory. You had some workers who had already been used to making your bags come and work for you. But you, were you basically factory manager right from the start? Yeah, but then then I found the the person who had been factory manager at the place. I mean, let's face it, if you're the kind of person who who rips off your best customer, yeah. you're probably not going to be the nicest person to work for. And and so if you'll treat your best customer that way, you're probably not treating your, your workforce that well. And that was certainly the case, you know, in, in this. And so, you know, straight away I had a phone call from the person who was, who was managing the team, you know, afterwards. And because I'd had that sort of moment when I went down and took the leather out uh, and said, you know, I, I know that you're, I know what you're doing and I can't work with you anymore. Um, and, and, and he pointed out that, you know, I was, and still am, you know, a woman who apparently doesn't know about manufacturing. So I didn't really have a choice Ooh. and, 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 and walked out. So it, it, that, that made it a lot easier to sort of just turn to people and say, well, no, he's right. You know, yes, I, I am a woman and I don't know about manufacturing, but what I do know about is, um, I know that. I was placing orders for 20,000 bags here and that's what you were going to work on. And you're not going to work on that anymore because I'm not 
placing those orders anymore because the leather's coming out. So if anybody's looking for a job, get in touch. And, <laughs> um, and, and so that, you know, that, that worked out. And so the person who is in charge of, of that team who was working on that was the first one to get in touch with me. And, um, and, and he was, was just such a, a fantastic asset. It, it, mm. And and as the people came over, they did know their jobs. So th- that's the thing. If you're if you're not a nice person, it'll bite you in the backside. So true. Yeah, but you reap what you sow. Yeah, you I do. Very much believe in that. Yeah, and if you're not allowing people to work in in conditions that are heated, if you're charging them then when they bring a heater to keep themselves warm and taking it off their wages, that kind of thing, it's probably going to mean that, yeah, they are going to move if they get, you know, an opportunity. So um, it it was a really, really, really stressful time, but it was was necessary. And it's, uh, it's meant that you know, we were then able, because it wasn't that long afterwards, the Google advert came along. And so Mm. thank goodness, you know, we were in a position then when we could scale up um, and, and the standards that we could put in place for the level of, because we were already making for Comme des Garçons. And, and even though a bag is handmade, that doesn't mean they're willing to to put up with huge variances between products. So, you know, we'd we'd make bags, send them to Paris. They'd be unloaded there at Paris and somebody would say, this is one millimeter off. I'm sending really? it back. And so, you know, you, you work with people like that and they do make you better. Mm. But if you aren't the, the person who's in charge of manufacturing, then there's only so much you can do to get that right. So now that we do have our manufacturing and we've grown enough that I, I have a wonderful head of manufacturing who is – you know, has has had great experience and actually does know what he's doing. Um, and so the standard can can raise that much and it has raised, you know, that much. And so uh, you look at the front of the bags and, and everything's lined up perfectly and everything's marked out perfectly and they don't change thread halfway through the bag. You know, they, just, <laughs> they get all these things absolutely sort of spot on. So if I had a pound for everyone that came to me and said, Kate, I hear that Julie Dean set up the Cambridge Satchel Company for £600. And from that, she found UK manufacturers to make her collection and off she went. And now it's a multi-million pound business overnight. And that is their perception. Um, I would be a very rich woman if that was the case. (laughs) Um, Obviously, when did you set up? 2008? Eight, yeah. And back then making in the UK was very different. I mean, that's just as I sort of first left my retail job and started thinking about supporting manufacturers that were left here. As you know, the landscape is very different now. There's not manufacturers sort of, they're not that that easy to, you know, they're not sitting around looking for business. What advice would you give someone who came to you and said, I've got £600 to set up a bag business. How do I approach manufacturers? Where do I find manufacturers? Because you kind of made it look easy, but I know it. Uh, I've heard your story. It was not, was it? No, it wasn't easy. And I think the thing thing is you've got to be prepared to do so much yourself, you know, so much yourself. And you've got to have no ego at all. 
You know, you can't think, oh, here I am. I'm going to be the the owner and founder of a brand. You know, so so that's already escalating yourself a little bit because <laughs> I honestly think you you cannot decide you're a brand. You know, you're you need other people to decide you're good enough to be a brand. And and for me, it was always to to sell enough satchels for Emily and Max to go to a great school. That mm. that was the thing. It wasn't world domination, and you know to 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 say oh i i own this brand that that wasn't the thing so that already puts you in a much stronger position because if your if your whole purpose is i have to make school fees for my children to go to a good school you're not putting yourself on a pedestal if that means mm. you know you've got to learn to code and do your own website because you have 600 pounds and you're going to need that for other things that's what you're going to have to do you know and and if you're going to have to pack, you know, 300 bags for urban outfitters in the States and learn how, how to make them fit in boxes with that funny nylon webbing tape around it and <laughs> learn to use that blinking, you know, that grabbing and clenching and cutting machine that you just <laughs> bought off eBay and it's not new and it's not that good and you don't know how to use it, but you're going to find something on YouTube that'll show you how, you know, that's what it's going to to take. You've got to be prepared to to do all those kinds of things. And, and finding the manufacturer, whilst it's, you know, a really, really important thing, there will be a number of other really, really important things as well. Mm, yeah, that's so true. So did you always think I'm going to make these bags in the UK? Yes. Or did, you did? Yes, because otherwise it would be too hard to sort out a problem if something was wrong. You know, mm. I, I because I've got to pick the kids up at school, you know. <laughs> yeah. so it's sort of like it's not really, practical. It's not practical. To go to China. <laughs> it's not practical. That's not going to work, you know, to just – and. And for me, a, a satchel is the most British thing. And if I can see them be made, and if I can talk to the people making them, if I can watch them being made, then all of a sudden it becomes possible to say, can we make a longer strap? Because it turns out our audience are actually um, adults. They're not children. So they you know, uh, often tend to be taller, especially as it seemed to take off in Sweden. And those people are really tall. So you know, we're going to have to work on the strap length. I I'm not going to be able to do that over a really big distance and in a different language, you know, it, it was, there was enough of a challenge going on. And so um, for me, it was the combination of a satchel is a, a British bag. I, I want to feel a complete connection to this so that I can tinker with it because I know I won't get it right first time. And then as we go along the way, it, it's probably going to, change along the way and there might be other things and and all of that I can't imagine doing from a distance mm. so how many bags did you make with that so that your first 600 pounds what of that went on stock and what went on other things like marketing I think thing, and you know my my greatest um skill and gift in a way was there was a complete lack of arrogance. I never for a minute thought this is going to be a big thing. I needed it to pay school fees. Mm. That's the thing. 
And so I was never going to say, oh, yes, I'm going to buy 200 of these, you know, because I didn't know if they were going to sell. And and so it was all about um, being really reasonable with the manufacturer and saying, look, if, if, if you're right and nobody wants satchels anymore, you can say, I'm right, you know, and that'll make <laughs> you happy. And if I'm right, then even though you weren't right, you'll suddenly have a new customer and, and that'll be good because then you'll have, you know, more sales coming in. So it, it was that kind of like a very human kind of approach that meant that my first order was just for, can I please have six bags? You know, right. two, two yeah. middle ones, two middle-sized ones and, and two big ones. And so that I can use um, the camera and, and take the children after school with clean socks and, and do what we now, you know, would call a photo shoot <laughs> uh, uh, behind Kings. And um, if you do a good job, I'll buy you a Mars bar. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that's kind of like how it'll work. But that's that was the thing. Everything was uh, a low, low risk because it had to be. Mm. And everything had to be watching every single penny, you know. So it wasn't like... I had, you know, oh, I'm I'm going to um, get a web designer. I mean, no, and that and and 2008 was before all of these plug and play kind of websites. Yeah. Whereas now, you you there are so many great ones where you can just think, oh, for 20 pounds a month, I can just upload my photos, use a template. I've got a whole back end stuff going on. This is great. No, mm. I I literally had to learn to code to do that first website myself. Yeah. There was no Shopify. There was no Instagram. No, no, no. There's Twitter. That's a good time, you know? Um, and, and just trying to, to get something up and running, um, from scratch, but it was made easier by the fact I didn't have a choice. You know, this, Mm. these school fees had to be made. Otherwise I was going to have to, go back to, you know, as kind of like a proper job where <laughs> if, if the children then were ill, you know, that would be inconvenient or how, how would I drop them off at school and pick them up from school? I wanted to be able to be there for them and not feel guilty, but at the same time, know they were in a really great school. So mm. I, I, I had to make this work. So at what point was it the tipping point when you thought, actually, this might be a little bit bigger than I originally planned or thought? I think... Again, you know, because I've listened to a lot of business pitches, you know, and I'm the entrepreneur in residence for the British Library. Um, mm. And and literally, I have a Guinness World Record um, in in listening to business pitches. So <laughs> so I have something <laughs> on my wall that shows that um, with with the team from Virgin, I sat for twenty nine hours. And listened to three oh, minutes. You really do have a Guinness record for that, do you? Yeah, or- I really do. I, I really oh, do. Yeah, and so people would have thirty seconds to come in, set up. Yeah. Three minutes to pitch. One and a half minutes of questions. Thirty seconds to get out. Next one come in, and it was it was streamed. You know, so people could see if we if we fell asleep or 
<laughs> or, or moved or, or thought we were going to go to the loo or something. You know, it was, it was streamed. And, we, and the people from, from the Guinness sort of world record, they, they take these things, you know, as they should, but very seriously. I mean, that man was there Norris. in the corner <laughs> with his, <laughs> sadly not, but somebody with the right color blazer and was there with his little stopwatch. And he, he kept a very strict track of um, how long, and every hour we would earn a five-minute break. But if I ran, it, uh, it was in the Hoxton Hotel, if I ran, I could get to the loo and back <laughs> in about 11 minutes. And, and, and so, you know, there's, so every, we would go for three hours, earn a 15-minute break, run to the loo and on the way back somebody would give us you know something that we could be eating while we sat down and tried to get ourselves composed ready to start again but we did that for 29 hours so wow. i know i know business pitches yeah. and um and and i listened to so many of them and it's amazing how people think there's a template to what you do. You, you find an idea that maybe somebody else has had success with, hopefully in some other part of the world. You're going to copy that idea and you're going to raise all the seed capital from somewhere else um, and, and not expect them to take like huge amounts of your business for, for trusting in you. And, and some of these, the people that start up businesses have got an exit plan before they've even started their business, mm. you know, and, and that's a very different way of, of looking at it and doing it. And that's a very, it's a very short term sort of thing. Mm. For, for me, it was, I need to do something that will be successful enough that, that my children can go to a really, really good school. And along the way then, then it becomes, Gosh, I'm building this this family of people that have mortgages that are being paid by what I'm doing. So I need this business. I need this now factory to be busy because I've got you know over a hundred mortgages that I'm feeling responsible for every yeah. month. You know, and 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 so it's not right to go into something take people on, but have in the back of your mind, this is my exit plan and not think about what, what, all these other people, you know, the, mm. this is their livelihood and, and you're building something that should be great, you know? And, um, and, and I think that's the, that was the mindset at least that, that I had. Mm. But you did have some investment. You had several rounds of investment, haven't you, along I, the way? I had my first set of investment five years after, just after, right. more than five years after um, I started. And so everything was self-financing in those first um, five years. And, and that is from £600 because I didn't have an overdraft and I didn't have any business loans at all, nothing. Mm. I'm, I'm very sort of debt-averse. So how did the business change from the first five years, self-funded, running it with your mum, to suddenly investment, taking on a whole lot of important people, using inverted oh. commas? Yeah, it's the, the, first, the first few years were as soon as we realised, thanks to 
flukishly getting into the Guardian gift guide at about this time of year. Um, and I looked that up actually, Julie, because oh, I, I did yeah. a little bit of research as well on you. Yeah. That was 2009 and your satchel in that gift guide. Do you remember how much it was, the price? Well, it probably would have been around 50 or 60. Yep, £58.99 yeah. back in those days. Yeah, because, well, the, the leather wasn't as good. Because um, I didn't have to pay any rent at all <laughs> because no I was overhead. working from the kitchen. Uh, I wasn't paying myself. I wasn't paying my mom. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I wasn't having to pay for IP. Mm. You know, I, I wasn't having to um, pay anything on. You know, it was a it was the coded website that I'd done myself, so that was you know dirt cheap. We we didn't have the cost of lawyers because people weren't pretending to be us, and and the internet hadn't moved. Ecom hadn't moved to that point where you needed to police your site in the way that you do now. You know, mm. in the there was one year. It was about the year probably the year after the Google advert where we had to shut down 223 fake Cambridge Satchel websites. Gosh, right. And so, that yeah, that's... Is expensive. Really expensive. Lawyers. Yeah. It's really expensive. Um, so, you, you know, your overheads grow as uh, as your, your business grows. And um, so, yes, that bag that was £60 and is now sort of like 120 it's it's a mixture of all of those things. I mean, at that mm. stage as well, I didn't even need to be VAT registered. You right, know, because you, went, was, yeah. you know we we weren't turning over enough. Mm. So there's there's lots of changes, and you can't you can't foresee it. You know, and it's wrong to foresee it because I couldn't have thought. I know. Let's set everything up as if I'm a ten million turnover business when you know I'm I was like a 1 million turnover business. Mm. You, you can't do that because it just doesn't fit where you are. I think that's so important is, is to realize the size of business you are and act appropriately because after our investment, you know, and, and some real experts came in and experts were kind of like defined as people who were in charge of that particular area, whether it was, head of e-com or head of tech or head of marketing for businesses that had in excess of 100 million turnover in sale. So in turnover. So those people don't roll their sleeves up. You know, those, no. those people don't come alone. Those people come <laughs> with teams, you know, they're, they're preferred people. Yeah. Mm. Uh, who are also not cheap people. Hmm. So, um, yes, there's, there's an investment that comes in, but wow, the business changes over overnight. Because the other thing is, if you're growing gradually and you're growing kind of sort of like naturally and organically, then you take people on as you can afford them and you take them on kind of like one by one. And But if you're fortunate enough to get a great investor and and my investor index is a great investor you know they 
they're just so smart. You know, they're, they're, they know exactly what they're doing. And, and they have this incredible network. But one thing that when a, a whole bunch of money comes in to the business, then all of a sudden you are recruiting people, a load of people, multiples of the number of people you already have. And so that is going to completely overtake your 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 company culture and mm. the people that you have, you know, in there already. And so things are are going to change. And and that's the bit that I got completely wrong because I wasn't prepared for that. I should have thought, okay, who am I going to take on first? Get them on board, you know, and and try and get them completely in line and company culture and all this kind of thing really, really well, and then get the next person in. But instead of that, it all happened at once, mm. and then all of a sudden, you know, there's there's people who think we're a cross between sort of like Netaporte meets British Airways meets Marks and Spencers meets you know all of these enormous businesses and we're not you know we're, mm. we're, we really weren't and it, but it was amazing and I think they were amazed by the level that we could get to while having the most simple systems imaginable yeah that's interesting so it was actually better to be a small and nimble business yeah you know and, and, and it, you do you get to the stage of it things become very complicated you know, and I, I remember there was um, we used to introduce a different color when one of the other colors stopped selling so well. You know, it's a really, really commonsensical thing. It's like, oh, the purple's really dropped off. Let's introduce uh, a sort of a turquoise and see how it goes. What color turquoise do you want? I don't know. Let's look at a paint chart. You know, and and it <laughs> yeah. was sort of done like that. And then five years later, it was kind of like, oh, you don't pick colors yourself. You you follow these trend forecasters, you know, and and there are some great ones out there like WGSN, you know, great at what they do. But that's why a lot of the big brands have the same colors in their windows and you can walk mm. down the high street maybe not at the moment, but, you know, before um, the virus sort of changed things, you could walk down the high street and especially if it's really swanky high street and they'd all have stuff in the same colors because yeah. they're buying into these trend forecasting programs. And, and we had just been reacting to what our customers wanted. You know, mm. it was a very, very, it was a nimble and it was a very agile sort of business, but I remember then being told, no, you know, you have to have a story behind the colors. There has to be an inspiration story. What's the inspiration behind this collection of colors? And and I I was asked by um, David Cameron to, to do a review of self-employment in the UK. And so I was delivering, um, I was, no, it was, it was at the start of the project. And I remember going to Downing Street looking, one of the buildings on the side had this most amazing Virginia creeper going up the side. And all these colors were there. There were like five colors. And I thought, this is exactly the number of colors I need for, <laughs> <laughs> for this next collection. I know I'm going to go with that color green, that color red, that color yellow. They all go together and they sit really perfectly. Took a photo and thought, oh, great. What a big tick. <laughs> but, but then when 
those colors for the autumn winter collection for the next year did actually arrive. Um, and it had been very clear this has come from these, these, this creeper up this really old building in London on Downing Street. And it was a great story, I thought, behind it. But when that launched, all of these sort of photos and everything, it was all around, I, I remember it, fall in the Hamptons. <laughs> For the Cambridge Satchel and Company. Like, what the heck is that? <laughs> fall in the Hamptons. And it's like, no, it was kind of like autumn in Downing Street. And <laughs> and and it's like, oh, yes, well, you know, the creative team got behind it and this is what – and I thought, a creative team? I didn't know there was one and I wasn't on it. <laughs> <laughs> really, in so, your own company. Yeah, exactly. So things things really, you know, got, got away from me and um, – I think as well there is this thing of imposter syndrome, which is the worst thing in the world where you suddenly think, well, if all of these sort of experts have come in, they know how to scale, they know how to do so. I I, I shouldn't I, – I started it. I got it to this stage. They, I need to listen to them now. Otherwise, why am I paying them this much? Mm. Um, and, and yet what it actually is is nobody knows your business like you do. Yeah, and your customers. Yes. No one knows your customers Nobody like you do. Nobody knows your customers. And our customers are, are people who believe in a strong style and a strong design. Those are our customers. Mm. Whereas in fashion, what, what the team wanted to hear was our customers are – this age, they have this much spendable income. They follow these people. These are the influencers they follow. These are the jobs. These are the postcodes they live. And that wasn't it. It, it's, it's, it was far more. It, it, it made more sense to me to say my customers are people that really love style and they really love design, and so they can be any age. You know, mm. they they can be like that really brave girl at school that dyes her hair and just doesn't care, but she knows who she is. And you think, wow, how did she get to be that happy with herself? Or it could be someone like a, a Helena Bonham Carter that you think, gosh, that's that's a really strong, eccentric look, but she gets away with it. Not only gets away with it, she makes it look amazing because she's confident about the way she wants to look. And and then, you know, people like the accidental icon or Helen Mirren, when mm. you think they haven't, they don't look at their birth certificate and say, oh, okay, I'm this age. And so now I should be buying these clothes and I should be watching, you know, TV every day and sitting down and not going out except on what the one night when I go out maybe for a pub quiz or or a <laughs> Sunday lunch or something like that. You know, they they don't know that those are the rules. That's the expectation. They're happy with who they are. And and so they don't fit nicely into some kind of idea of this is a customer and the first identifier that I'm going to give you is their age. And it, it's not like that for us. And and so that that didn't fit conventional marketing. Mm. So the satchel is such an iconic bag. Yeah. And and 
at the time when you launched Cambridge Chatter Company, it was that kind of forgotten icon, icon, wasn't it? And now it's become an icon. But at the same time, that must have been a bit of a rod for your own back in that it was so distinctive and such a distinctive style. How do you then add other pieces into the range and become something other than just about one type of product? So we had... um we we started with satchels and then really branched out and added music bags. Another <laughs> <laughs> uh, unused classic, yeah. yeah. Um, and and we were we were doing that, but then when after the investment and there was real pressure to create different bag shapes because of the way the company was was being run then and the resources that we had and the dilution of what the brand stood for and 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 is we started making bags that we thought would suit a customer who wasn't actually our customer if that makes mm. sense so it's like oh okay well who do you want me to be you know that's the that's the attitude that it became it's like well this is what's fashionable now we need a version of this you know, and and um, this is the new thing. We need a version of that. Whereas before, I hadn't looked at what anybody else was doing. It was just like I I really love satchels, and I can't believe that that they've been forgotten in this way. It's just not right. So this is what I am going to bring back in colors that they've never been seen in before. And I just feel like you can have lots of different bags, but you know, one of those bags needs to be a satchel. It's like a staple. And mm. so going from from that to, oh, yes, and then we need a bag that our girl is going to carry to a festival. And you're just thinking, what what is this? And then all these designers start coming in. And and for me, you know, the, the whole thing of going through a really stressful series of le- many loss making years because the the overhead was so out of control and and we had lost touch with the deeply loyal committed customer that that was ours in those early years um that it, it was a fighting tooth and nail for the survival of the business and survival of the company and and then when you look at what's happened, you know, during during the coronavirus um, period when there's no tourists and all the shops, you know, our shops are shut and all this mm. kind of, and you've really got to cut it back. It, it, it struck me as this is the time when you really have to just press pause, you know, and just think, stop, let's have a think about who we actually are. And once mm. we know who we actually are, we'll know what we actually need, you know, and we can't afford anything that we want. We, we can only afford what we actually need. And, and you know, that, again, is a, a point that's been a, a really interesting sort of process to go through. Um, and, and we needed some help with that, you know, and, and so th- that whole process is, is great because, you know, looking back, you know, the the doctor's bag for us was was a big hit and it deserved to be a big hit because I worked on it for six years to get it right. But um, um, it 
It deserved to be a big hit because this is another bag that had been used by doctors, but had never been seen as kind of like a bag for everyone. Mm. But once you see one and you use it as your everyday bag, you suddenly realize why this bag is genius for doctors because it opens to be flat. It opens, it's 180 degrees when it opens. And so you can see everything in it. So so the doctor that's got the screaming child and needs to find the vaccination needle really quickly or something, they can put their hand on it really quickly. Of course, yes. You know, that, and, like and, and so suddenly when you're the person that is is trying to find their um, train ticket because a conductor has crept up behind you and you had your little earphones in and you were listening to a podcast and you weren't paying attention and then suddenly there's someone there and you need to find your train ticket that you're really glad you've got a doctor's bag because you can open it 180 (laughs) degrees and you can literally see everything in it and you can just lift it out and say I'm I'm really glad I've got that bag I'm not fishing around like a lunatic trying to find a a ticket or keys or my phone or you know And, and so that bag to me makes sense you know it's a bag that has a reason and it's a bag that is just great to use it fits your life Mm. and it's a bag that has a history in the same way as as the satchel has a history and so Mm. that's what we do we we look to the past for things that were genius in their design there was a reason for their design it wasn't just a fad and we bring them back and, mm. and and that's what we do. And once once we became very clear in that, then suddenly we looked at all the stock we had and thought, we have bags here that really don't fit that kind of like idea of what a Cambridge satchel bag would be. They have to go. And and yeah. there was a degree of ruthlessness there where we realized we're carrying too much stock and some of that then has to go and and not come back because it doesn't fit what we do. And loads of other people do what we were trying to do very well. They're bigger than us. They have more budget than us, but, but we do something very special and we need to realize what it is that we do and, and just do that. Yeah. I think that's really good advice, but I suppose when you launched the, doctor's bag yeah the construction of that in itself must have brought a challenge because the good thing about making the satchels when you own your own factory is you can teach your your production staff to make a certain style of bag and then you go and make a doctor's bag which is a completely different construction it's completely different and and we're facing that again because now of course we brought out the doctor's bag but we are working on the ultimate doctor's bag for men you know because our doctor's bag is kind of like the size and shape uh, and hardware that is right for women to carry if it's in some colors then then it approaches unisex but there is a better bag for men that fits that that bill a lot better but again oh my gosh you know trying to find a frame that's made in the UK that is right so that we can then use that in our factory to to make those bags. That's like the biggest challenge in the world because 
people don't make things the same way now. You know, things have become mm. disposable. They, it's like quick, make them very fast on an automated line and, and then they don't have to last. But these bags are supposed to last and, and they need to look right. And that means a frame that isn't going to be on sort of Alibaba and instantly mm. available and, and cheap as chips. But it needs to be right. And so that's why it takes us a long time to develop things. Well, I hope that manufacturer that I gave you the details for, I hope he can help you out. Well, because I yeah, think- he's, he's, he's definitely, you know, going to hear a lot from us. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> So what do you think the future holds? So you've taken back more control of your of the business again now and you're kind of deciding who your true customer is and not going with all the trends and the versions no. of and doing your own thing, which is brilliant. How do you think that's going to pan out post-COVID? Because let's hope in six months' time we'll all be back to normal again. What does that mean for the Cambridge Satchel Company going forward? I, th- I think it's... Um... It is so important that we realized who we are. You know, we we have always been brave. You know, we took a school satchel that was seen in chestnut and black and we brought it out in neon yellow. You know, uh, we, we, we were never that beige, middle of the road kind of company. We would go and we would commit. <laughs> and, and some <laughs> things that we would commit to didn't work out. And some things that we would commit to were were absolute genius and 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 they sort of deserve to stay and and that's who we've got to be you know and and so i think that being brave enough to make that statement that we we want to make bags for the world's most interesting people that's that's who we are we we want bags for people who care about what they're buying, who who want to know the history of the bag that they've bought. They want to know that it's been made in Britain, you know, just outside Leicester. And and these are the sort of like the these this these are the challenges that we faced and and this is why the feet are this high and this is why you know they can ask us because we made it there's a reason yeah. for every tiny detail on that bag and and those are the people that we love you know the people that really care about what they buy and and the people that i think that this christmas more than christmas is for a very long time People are buying earlier for for Christmas, and they're they're looking for special things, and they they're giving the gift of time to people that mean a lot to them. And part of that gift of time is researching, you know, what would that person really love, and and trying to to get it right rather than just oh look the budget on that person's 100 pounds i've spent 100 pounds you know that's that's done or i'm going to give them a gift voucher you know just it's not good enough you know it's not good enough you put <laughs> thought into what you buy for people because you've spent a lot more time with them it might have been over zoom or whatever screen time but you have mm. spent that time with them you know them better you know what they like and what they don't like. And so you should be able to come up with a gift that really hits that mark. And so I think for us, it's, it, 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 it's, it's gone through everything. You know, if you look at our Instagram a year ago compared to now, 
you'll see that now we we did um, we've made these lovely bags with um, some fantastic tweed that was was made up in 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 Harrison and those bags we thought right we'll go back we will head north and so you look at our Instagram there's a Highland cow on there there's you know sort of like a glass of brandy there's somebody yomping around in the wilderness with these ba- these bags are made to last and whereas before maybe we'd have done that kind of like really deeply questionable thing of oh here's a bag next to uh, a cappuccino with some coffee art in the froth you know it's like what what is that, that what what is that yeah. and and they're bags on people where the models are just young and thin and standing on king's parade it's not enough you know the these these shoots that we've done since we decided we make bags for the world's most interesting people what would they do they would go on a steam train up through yorkshire you know and though that's what we need to be capturing we need to be capturing the people that for us, when people say, oh, you're an aspirational brand, yes, we are, but it's not aspirational in a money sense. It's aspirational in a, we want to live a colorful life. We want great experiences and we want stuff that we know where it came from and, and why it's that way. And we can we can talk about everything that we own because it's been bought with thought and it's been bought with this sense of I'm proud because I invested in British manufacturing and we know that jobs don't come easy, you know, and so we think about where we spend our money and we want this country to be strong enough to to get through COVID and to get through Brexit. And, and so that's why we are buying these things. And we love the fact that the this is why you know the the attachments for the shoulder strap are this way and it took them blooming ages to do it but when you take the shoulder strap off they fall back in to the frame of the bag so that the line of the bag isn't you know offended and it is just the the level of detail can only be appreciated by those people who care about that level of detail and and that's who i had in the beginning and and those are the people that we're speaking to and and touching again now. And we didn't deserve to have those people in some of the years in the middle. And and that's fair enough. They they're discriminating and they know what they're looking for. And uh, we we lost our way, and so they went somewhere else. And and that's fair enough. But it's it's just nice to feel like we're properly on the right track. Brilliant. Julie, that's an amazing. You know what? The last question I was going to ask you today was why should people buy gifts that are made in the UK? And I didn't even have to ask it. Oh. You read my mind oh my and gosh. you've already answered it. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it is. It's, it, it's so hard watching the news and seeing businesses struggle. That is, it's a, a really hard thing. But every every decision we make and every time we spend we're deciding who we're going to support and every sale does matter for every British business. And so it's just, it's a really critically important thing, but I think that people realize that and, and the independents are getting more attention and, and rightly so, because these people are passionate about what they do and they do a great job. Um, And, and 
So it's it, it has been a very, very tough time, but I think that people are more conscious about the way they spend. Yeah, so true. Julie, fantastic. You've been such a wonderful guest. It's been so lovely to speak to you, Thank as you. always. Thank you. And it's just so obvious that you're so passionate about what you do. And and I'm, you know, I'm so looking forward to seeing what's going to happen with the Cambridge Natural Company over the next 10 years or 20 years. I know. Yes. And just to see, you know, the the impact. But there are so many great things that have been forgotten that, that luckily I can go and have a scrabble at. And I love a jumble sale. So it's, you know, it so gives, do I. I love it. So do I love I. it. And so it gives me every excuse to to sort of go and have a bit of a rummage. They don't have many around my way. I don't know whether it's a Surrey thing, but it's probably seen as, you know, you don't go through someone else's old goods. Do you still have jumble sales in Cambridge? Oh, I, I, I hunt them out. They, um, I hunt them out and I'll go an awful long way for, you know, but even like village fates. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm in there. I, I just sales. love it. Boot sales I don't love so much, I've got to say. Do I don't because it's all the disposable rubbish that people shouldn't have bought in the first place. Oh, if you get up early, there's the odd gym. Oh, I don't. I really don't <laughs> like getting up early. That's the problem. <laughs> oh, Julie, thank you very much for joining thank me today. You. I will let you go now. Thank you. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Make It British podcast. I make an episode every Tuesday, plus there's bonus episodes occasionally. So make sure you subscribe in your favourite podcast app. And if you're looking to find British-made brands or UK manufacturers, check out the directory on the Make It British website at makeitbritish.co.uk forward slash directory. Thank you for listening. Bye bye.